You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works Volume 220 by Rudolf Steiner, entitled Awake for the Sake of the Future. Twelve Lectures, translated by Jan W. Gates. This is Lecture 4, entitled Jacob Burma, Giordano Bruno, and Francis Bacon as representatives of the struggle to discover a new knowledge of humanity and the cosmos. Given in Dornach on January 12th, 1923. In the course of world history, there are outwardly visible symptoms that reveal forces of inner development. And these symptoms sometimes show how the outward expression is connected to the inner developments. The interrelatedness that permeates the universe, the interwoven worlds of the spirit, the soul, and physical matter are of such a profound nature that often what merely seems to be outwardly apparent upon closer examination actually corresponds to inner reality. And in that sense, Giordano Bruno's death in 1600, he was condemned to death and burned at the stake, was an outward manifestation of a most significant inner development for humanity. Indeed, the flames of this pyre illuminate for the historical observer a clearly legible flame script recording an inner transformation that became important for the entire development of human history. We must not forget three personalities who are significant for every subsequent period. A Dominican, Giordano Bruno, a shoemaker, Jacob Berma, and a Lord Chancellor, Francis Bacon. These men were significant for every subsequent period because they embodied characteristics of humanity's transition from the 16th to the 17th centuries. These three men had very dissimilar personalities, but precisely in their distinctiveness, one from another, each one reflected a different aspect of what was emerging in the new world view and what was waning in the older world view during this time of human development. Jacob Burma came from the humblest origins in his society and yet even as a boy his finely attuned soul-sensitive ear could hear much of the folk wisdom that during his lifetime still lived within the peoples of Middle Europe. This folk wisdom was more closely linked to what a person could feel inwardly than it was to learning the secrets that lay behind natural processes. The folk wisdom at that time, which was still audible to Jacob Burma's soul-sensitive ear, had already reached a state in which its profound wisdom could no longer be clothed in language or expressed adequately in words. Aside from all of Burma's greatness, we observe how Burma chewed his words, tried to press and wrest out of them what he experienced through his feelings 
and had drawn into himself out of the wisdom still present in folk traditions. Next, we consider Giordano Bruno, who was steeped in the teachings of the Dominican order. These teachings were based on an ancient wisdom that also brought forward insights in finely chiseled ideas about the relationship of the human being to the universe. These insights contained a certain strength and intensity of knowledge, but these qualities had faded under the influence of church tradition. We see in Giordano Bruno the longing and passion for knowledge that was characteristic of the transition from the 16th to the 17th centuries and was forged within the soul with Faustian force. Giordano Bruno was entirely a child of his age, for in addition to his Dominican heritage, he was also a contemporary citizen of the world in the most refined sense possible one who brought forth vivid, clear-cut, and yet carefully cultivated ideas. In all likelihood, no one embodied the character of his age more fully than did Giordano Bruno. We can see that he wrapped the subtle ideas he encountered during his student years in the cloak of poetry. For Bruno, who wished to speak out of the fullness of universal consciousness, had to work within the narrow confines of the human souls of his day. He became a knowledge-imbued poet, a poetic scientist. Such a rich soul content lived within him that whenever he tried to say something, this rich soul-filled substance burst through the constraints of lifeless ideas. Bruno had to give himself over to the poetic in order to express the fullness of light. Now, we can look at our third representative, Francis Bacon, Lord Verulam, a man who lost entirely the ground beneath his feet and was completely engulfed by the outer material life of his age. He was a statesman who served James I as the Lord Chancellor of England. A man of great intelligence, he was not rooted in any specific spiritual or intellectual tradition and thus could personify what the philosopher Fichte later derided as the banality of reason, the banality of rationalism. Francis Bacon indeed did introduce banality into philosophy. He had completely lost the ground of the spiritual under his feet. Since he was not rooted in any particular tradition, he regarded as real only what his outward senses showed him. He was not willing to assume anything spiritual on the basis of his sense experience. Bacon was the opposite of Jacob Burma. Burma wanted to extract out of an old spirituality what could in fact no longer be understood. The spark of the soul as well as the spark of the material. He wanted to find the secrets of the soul and matter in the old traditions which he then struggled to clothe in words hardly adequate to the task. Francis Bacon found no such desire within himself. His soul existed as a tabula rasa, an empty slate, in contrast to the outwardly perceived sense world. Bacon used the banality of ordinary human reason 
not the healthy form of reason, to meet the outer world of the senses. Out of this approach arose a knowledge based entirely on sense perception, a knowledge devoid of every aspect of the spiritual. These three personalities were contemporaries. Burma was born in 1575. Bruno, born in 1548, was the oldest of the three. Lord Bacon was born in 1561. Each in his own way represented a different aspect of the initial stage of modern civilization. Today, when forces pressing downward are at their strongest, it is difficult to understand what was inwardly weaving and living within such souls as these. A great deal of what lived in these souls as real and genuine spiritual perspectives has now died out. At some point in the future, looking back to our time period, it will be possible to see our era as a culmination of materialism, which carries within it a corresponding moral counter-image of materialism. And this moral counter-image shows an increasing level of immorality as well as indifference toward everything spiritual. I draw attention to this indifference because during the three lectures this weekend I wish to build toward a culmination on Sunday in which I shall speak about the opposition to the anthroposophical worldview. Therefore, I am laying the foundation for this today and tomorrow through historical examples and observations. The indifference toward everything spiritual raises the question of why people in our era still find something remarkable in Goethe's title, Faust. It would be easier to understand if human beings in our time said that Faust belongs to an epoch that has already been superseded. Indeed, they could say that Goethe's Faust reveals little more than superstition. It often deals with magic and even features a pact with the devil. It is easy enough to say in our day that all of this is simply poetic embellishment. And yet many willingly acknowledge that Goethe in the character of Faust wanted to portray a representative of humanity. We have to admit that it may be easier to adopt the position taken by the prominent scholar Dubois Raymond, who regarded Faust as nothing more than nonsense. Dubois Raymond advised Faust to do the honorable thing, Mary Gretchen, and focus his attention on inventing the electric machine and the air pump. That is an honest expression of what most people today think about Faust, but few say. Many praise Faust only because it is popular to say that Goethe's Faust is a great work that should not be dismissed. But this only reflects indifference. They do not bother to take a stand about something that does not matter to them. One should be clear about the attitudes that might be expressed today if they were not influenced by judgments from the past. If Shakespeare had not written his Hamlet and the play had appeared as one written only recently by an obscure poet, then we would see what people would honestly say about this play now. We really have to think seriously about these things in order to understand our own day and time. Indifference lets you make an observation about Mephistopheles in Goethe's Faust 
because you may feel too timid to do otherwise, or because it allows you to say all manner of insignificant things about magic in the play. But to penetrate what was really present as a soul-spiritual atmosphere in a time when a matter decisive for the spiritual life of modern civilization was at stake is almost impossible in the present time. And yet that was precisely the case in the era in which Giordano Bruno, Jacob Burma, and Francis Bacon lived. Above all, if we want to look into this matter objectively, we must acknowledge the tremendous ideas that arose in earlier epochs, and they are remarkable, especially in comparison with ideas today. Ideas that once were held in enormous regard are treated with indifference today. At best, they only shed light on a literary or historical context. We look back to the medieval era and see a figure such as Merlin. Karl Leberecht Immermann tried to bring this figure back to life for his own era. Yet what had once been larger than life, images, lost all of their grandeur in Immermann's prosaic verse. Let us take the straightforward story of the Merlin legend. What was Merlin supposed to become? He was supposed to be the antithesis of the Christ. According to the medieval legend, Merlin was to be the exact opposite of the Christ. The scriptural tradition tells us that the Christ came into the world without physical procreation. Merlin was also supposed to incarnate in the same manner. But Christ entered the world through the overshadowing of Mary by the Holy Spirit. Merlin was supposed to enter the world because the devil overshadowed a virtuous nun as she slept. The devil wished to create an antipode to the Christ in Merlin. He overshadowed a pious nun as she was sleeping. But Merlin did not become the Antichrist because the nun was too virtuous. The devil's intent was frustrated by the purity of the nun's morality. What do the lines of thinking in a medieval saga imply? They project an inner dauntlessness in the medieval worldview, an inner energy within human thought processes. If we compare this with what is said in our time about the origin of evil in the world, with the exception of what may be said in anthroposophic circles, about the origin of corruption in the human being, we must admit that what has taken hold in recent times is trivial, and narrow-minded. Finally, apart from inner philosophical rigor, with which the origin of evil is sometimes spoken about today, some of the things said about evil are trivial in comparison with the impact of the creation of Merlin, who is a misbegotten son of the devil and therefore can never become evil enough. Remember that Merlin is one of the leaders of the Arthurian circle. The legend used the figure of Merlin to illuminate a characteristic of an era. But the bards could not find anything on earth from this period of time that would capture adequately what they wished to portray. Therefore the legend went beyond the earthly realm, soared above it into the supra-sensory and the evil, and used a misbegotten son of the devil to explain something of an earthly nature. I am not saying that we have a need for a similar mythic element for our own era. 
I am not saying that in order to capture something of this magnitude, we would have to speak in a similar way. Nor do we need to attribute the origin and source of Philistinism in the modern period to something earthly. For Philistinism has the peculiar characteristic that it fails to grasp its perniciousness, even as it lacks an understanding of its usefulness. We find, for example, that controversy over the Lord's Supper or Communion was already widespread during the High Middle Ages. Bracket 9th through the 13th centuries CE. Close bracket. I have already pointed out that people began to debate questions about the Lord's Supper only when they no longer knew what was contained within the sacrament. One begins to debate a matter only when one knows nothing about it. As long as we know something about a matter, we do not need to discuss it. For those who can look with even a little insight into a world secret, discussion is always a sign of knowing nothing. Thus when people sit down and begin to discuss and argue about something, it is an indication, to a person who has insight, that no one knows anything. As long as reality exists and it is possible to know something only about what is real, no one needs to have a discussion about it. I have never heard that when a rabbit is placed on the table at mealtime there is a discussion as to whether or not it is a real rabbit, or where the rabbit may have originated, or whether the rabbit exists in time or eternity. Instead, people sitting around the table eat the rabbit. There may be debates over its ownership, but not over existential questions. But behind the historical controversies over the Last Supper or Communion, there lies something very different that allows us to experience the enormity of ideas for human beings in an earlier era. These ideas provide a great contrast to the Philistine ideas of today, which are sometimes no less devilish, but in any case still are Philistine ideas. Individuals such as Trithemius von Sponheim, Agrippa von Nettesheim, Georgius Sibelicus and Paracelsus were not slandered in an ordinary manner. They were accused of forming covenants with the devil and of practicing the art of magic, which people so feared. We also recognize a fear of the magical behind the controversy over the Lord's Supper or Communion. The fear of magic accompanied the emergence of a new period in history, whose signature may also be found in individuals such as Francis Bacon, Giordano Bruno and Jacob Burma. What did it mean if someone was called a magician? A magician was someone who could draw a kind of knowledge out of his inner being that supported the capacity to control nature and even other human beings. But the spirit of modern civilization moved toward the suppression of the inner knowledge that had formerly existed and had carried a remnant of ancient esoteric knowledge into the early modern period. Instead, the spirit of modern civilization allowed only the knowledge drawn from external nature to flourish and put aside knowledge arising from the human being's innermost being. In an earlier time, human beings stood in abject fear 
of anyone who handled things in a way they could not understand, that is, putting together machines and so forth. In the modern era, we know that if you can watch someone do something, you have an idea of how the knowledge entered another person's mind and can grasp it yourself. Today, that process is a given, and no one is afraid of magic anymore. The fear no longer exists because the inner sources of knowledge have been pushed deeply into the human being. Today it seems immaterial whether one listens to someone who imparts knowledge that is truly a part of the speaker or watches a person who operates machines in the laboratory. In either case, one thinks one can see how knowledge comes into another individual's mind and does not admit that the other person's mind can contain anything else. We always have to be able to see exactly what a person has in his or her head. Today, this seems to be self-explanatory. It just, quote, stands to reason, close quote. In the time of Francis Bacon, there were still human beings who possessed a wealth of inner activity. So it was worthwhile for Francis Bacon to launch a campaign opposing the abundance and worth of an inner life of the soul and to point out the wealth of what could be gained from one's external surroundings. Here again we look back to the previous era, in which people presumed that the human mind could be filled with content, and they wanted to know what that content was, because they were convinced that what the mind contained could not be found in nature that surrounds the human being. And then Bacon came and explained that the presumption that the mind generated content from within was ridiculous. The human head is completely empty. Everything the mind contains has to be drawn into it from without, from nature itself. That was Francis Bacon's theory. But in the early Middle Ages, the great fear prevailed that in human beings something of an independent knowledge could grow within the soul. And even that the spirit could grow within the human being. No wonder the understanding of the mystery of the Eucharist died out completely, for it presumed that a real transformation occurred within the human being, a transformation in which physical matter could become something entirely different. Thus we see that during the controversy over the Eucharist something remarkable occurred. In the early periods of Christianity, the transformation of the bread and wine, transubstantiation, enabled certain ideas to be accepted as both possible and real. By the 16th century, the power of these ideas no longer existed. Therefore, human beings began to ask, what can the mystery of the Eucharist be? And henceforth, the ceremony and its components were seen in a purely external manner. The external and material convey the essence of what was being expressed through the ritual, so that the adherents of the Reformation argued about the manner in which the bread and the wine should be served, as well as about the nature and significance of the ritual itself. The spirit was driven out of the ceremonies. That was the first phase of the era of materialism. Materialism and modern civilization surfaced initially in the debate over Christian sacraments. 
Materialism first burst forth in this religious context. And during this time, the period in which Bruno, Burma and Bacon lived, the seed for a new spirituality should have been planted. But this modern era showed humanity only spiritless matter in the laws of nature. As a result, human beings had to search for the spirit by means of their own capacities. In this first phase of materialism, the spirit was extinguished in the life of the mind, and above all it was extinguished in all aspects of religious ritual. And then the dissolution of the spirit continued even further into all of the secular areas of life. Goethe was aware of this and created in his Faust an echo of what still lived in the vigorous ideas that arose in the transition between the 16th and 17th centuries. What did Goethe want to represent in the character of Faust? The form is poetic, but above all he wanted to bring to light the universally human. It is not difficult to say what Goethe wanted to achieve in Faust. He wanted to place the complete, full human being before humanity. When the impulse to write Faust arose in Goethe, he could find only limited and incomplete traditions regarding the historical Dr. Faustus. But he chose this Faust figure from the 16th century because Goethe's perceptive feeling sensed the mighty struggle in the 16th century to rediscover something that had been lost, namely the human being. The discovery of the true nature of the human being was what each of the three men I mentioned earlier in this lecture also tried to achieve. Giordano Bruno, Jacob Burma, and Francis Bacon. The Dominican Giordano Bruno outgrew scholasticism, in which ideas had faded into externalized abstraction. Bruno expressed his ideas in poetics, elevated them into an art, and filled them with feeling and meaning. He tried to bring the ideas with which he struggled back to life. How is the universe found within the human being? How is the human being found within the cosmos? This is how it was with Giordano Bruno. This was also the goal of the shoemaker Jacob Burma. He too sought for the human being. But he did so among the humble people with whom he had grown up, whose qualities seemed more human than people among society's elite. He did not find the essential human being he sought. So he immersed himself as deeply as possible in folk wisdom. What he also sought was the universe revealed in the human being and the human being revealed in the universe. Among the three, Francis Bacon was the only one who did not consciously search for the essential human being although he looked for the human being in a certain way. He wished to understand the human being in the way leading investigators of nature have always looked for this knowledge. Bacon wanted to characterize the human being as a kind of mechanism. Condillac and Lametri, natural philosophers of the 19th and 20th centuries, constructed the human being out of atoms and various natural processes, just like a mechanism. These thinkers produced nothing more than a ghost of the human being, a ghost that was not alive. Rather, it was just a sack filled with abstractions.
Bacon, too, spoke about the human being, as if he were carrying around a sack stuffed full of abstractions. Even so, it still represented something. Bacon did search for the human being, even though he was unconscious of it. He did not realize it, but he also sought to understand the universe in the human being and the human being in the universe. Now, what do we mean when we say that each one of these individuals, Jacob Burma, Giordano Bruno, and Francis Bacon, in his own way, was searching for the human being within the universe and the universe within the human being? If we look at Jacob Burma, we see that he tried to speak about a human being that simply does not exist. Through his faltering concepts, we find a profile of a human being that is nowhere to be found on earth. Nevertheless, this apparently non-existent human being had an inner capacity, an inner power of existence. When we try to take Jacob Burma's human being into account, we have to say to ourselves that Jacob Burma speaks about the three elements of life within the human being salt, sulfur, and mercury. And yet, this is not the human being we see before us in the modern era. But what Jacob Burma forms and shapes is a being. You cannot say he puts it together piece by piece, but rather that he forms and shapes this being. And in a spiritually scientific manner, you ask what relationship the human being has with respect to the being portrayed by Jacob Burma. And then we realize that this being is the human being in its pre-earthly existence. When we consider it from a spiritual scientific point of view, we discover remarkable correspondences between the pre-earthly existence of the human being and the being Jacob Burma tried so haltingly to describe. On the earth, a human being in its pre-earthly form, as it was described by Jacob Burma, cannot exist. But in its pre-earthly state of being, this being did have a plausible existence. Nevertheless, Burma's description does not entirely agree with the actual pre-earthly human being. When we enter fully into Burma's description of the human being, then on the basis of anthroposophic knowledge, we sense that Jacob Burma is portraying the pre-earthly existence of the human being. That is indeed so. But Burma described the pre-earthly existence in such a way that it remains a theory, not externally, but inwardly, a theory. It is the pre-earthly human being that cannot become fully human and perishes spiritually before the pre-earthly human being can be born on earth. This form of the human being cannot come into earth existence. What Jacob Burma portrayed of the pre-earthly human being shows that he wanted to reach a memory of what a person once could have experienced, but no matter how hard he tried, he failed to draw the memory into conscious awareness. For Jacob Burma, the capacity to conjure up again the pre-earthly human being had been lost. In earlier ages, the human being could know pre-earthly existence. Burma had found this kind of wisdom in folk traditions, but he was unable to produce anything more than a stillborn, 
soul image of the pre-earthly human being. He no longer had the capacity to portray the human being as a living reality in pre-earthly existence. Let us now turn our attention to Giordano Bruno, who was not only a child of his time, but a person for whom only the present mattered. You have the feeling with Giordano Bruno that the present was everything, the grand present, the present that encompasses the cosmic all in space. With Bruno, there was nothing of the past and nothing of the future. He experienced the cosmos entirely in the present. He represented the cosmic all as something present and wanted to portray the human being as well within the context of the present through his halting poetic words. Bruno could not accomplish this any more than Jakob Burma could attain his goal of characterizing the pre-earthly human being. But the seeds are present in Bruno to place the human being of the present, that is, the human being between birth and death, in an accurate way, so that the human being can be correctly understood. Thus we see the limitations of human capacities and persistence in mastering a true knowledge of the whole human being. And the knowledge and understanding of the human being must be one, because only from this knowledge may our understanding of the pre-existent and post-existent human being spring forth. We know very little of the post-existent human being. This form of the human being was entirely closed and invisible to Francis Bacon. During sleep, the eye and the astral body are outside of the physical and etheric bodies, which continue to live in the same world that we see with our eyes and perceive with the entire apparatus of the senses. During sleep, our soul-spiritual kernel takes into itself what is needed for the future and what will unfold after we go through the gate of death. What is taken from this life and is carried over from the present into the future is veiled to ordinary consciousness. Similarly to the first beginnings of modern scientific knowledge, which are evident in Francis Bacon, the future was closed from view. And yet, even though its existence was denied, an awareness of the future lived in the knowledge of the senses at an unconscious level. Indeed, by means of a knowledge gained through sense perception, we must recreate knowledge of post-existence, that is, an understanding of our existence after death. Bacon could not accomplish that, for he had no spiritual capacity to do so. He portrayed the human being as if it were a sack of ideas stuffed full of abstractions. It is the most imperfect and lamentable result that emerged in the transition to the modern era, that the human being had to strive to reach the spiritual out of the knowledge of nature. Indeed, the knowledge of the spirit had to be wrenched from the knowledge of nature. That is what occurred in the life of Francis Bacon. We see that Jacob Berma was trying, however imperfectly, to reach a picture of the pre-earthly human being. In Giordano Bruno we find a grand and yet equally incomplete picture of the earthly human being in the present, 
in the time between birth and death, drawn out of the world all. With Bacon, we have an unconscious attempt to see what should someday come to life, but instead produces only a completely dead product. The human being, as portrayed by Bacon, cannot live on earth. His form of the human being is a ghost on the earth. However, when the role of the soul spiritual in sleep and in human existence between death and rebirth is rightly understood and comes to fruition, then humanity will become aware of its own post-earthly existence. When we look at these three spirits, a truly remarkable trefoil presents itself at the turn of the 16th and 17th centuries. They came from diverse origins. Jacob Burma was a man of the common people. Giordano Bruno was steeped in the spiritual schooling of the Dominican order. And Francis Bacon outwardly attained the highest social station, but inwardly had completely lost the foundation under his feet. When we take into account the social circumstances of each one, and how each in a different way came to his own perspectives, then we discover what remarkable destinies were fulfilled in their lives. We see the man of the common people, Jacob Burma, fighting his entire life for what still lived within the folk traditions. But these remnants lived in an inarticulate form and even provoked persecution. The struggle also existed within the common people, but in a latent form. Jacob Burma himself never left the spheres of folk tradition. Francis Bacon was a remarkable intellect and an advocate of the modern worldview. Morally, he lost his way. Bacon was representative of the risks of modernity, at least insofar as this kind of science may open the way to moral waywardness. And between the two is Giordano Bruno, who pointed not to something from the past, nor to something out of the future, but wanted to seize within the immediate present the kernel that would grow into the spiritual perspective of the future. In Bruno this still appeared in embryonic form. But those who were tied to the old traditions were determined to suppress this seed in its moment of birth. And so we see how the flaming pyre in Rome was a remarkable historical monument. Bruno himself declared that his execution would be significant in the future. Quote, you may kill me, but my ideas over centuries cannot be extinguished. Ideas will live on. Close quote. So here, the outer symptoms of historical development actually reveal the inner development of humanity in a profound way. And if we really understand the context of the old, then we also understand that the flames consuming Giordano Bruno bore witness to the new impulse, which of necessity had to arise out of the old. I wanted to describe for you what actually inwardly took place in this event, what those flames were meant to destroy. Now, in our day, a physical memorial in honor of Giordano Bruno has been erected where the pyre was lit. We want to be sure that we understand what was extinguished in that event and what should and must continue to live and continue to develop in a living way, albeit not in precisely the same form, 
in which it once transpired. The end of Lecture 4